Uh, when we lived in Texas, we went to a restaurant in town. Sherry and I used to go there pretty often. And there was a lady there that worked there that looked a whole lot like my sister. Matter of fact, the first time I saw her, I kind of did a double take. I was like, whoa, is that Jenny? Yeah. And, uh, but it wasn't Jenny. As I got to a little bit closer, I uh, heard her speak. Her voice was different than my sister's. Uh, plus, there was the fact that my sister lived in a different state. Uh, she had a bunch of kids that she was taking care of during the day and wouldn't have been there working at that restaurant. Uh, then I saw, as I got to know her a little bit better, she had a different personality than my sister. And so she may have looked a little bit like her, but she was a completely different person. Well, you say, well, why in the world are you telling us that story? Well, the reason is because there have been many pretenders over the years who have claimed to be the Messiah. But there's only one who fits the bill. And his name is Jesus Christ. Um, we had to do uh, matching problems when I was in school. I'm sure you probably have done those before. And uh, where, you know, if it's in math, you have a an equation, and you match it to the answer, or uh, you, if you're in English, you have a word, and you match it with the definition. Um, if, uh, if you're in preschool, you got two pictures, and you match one picture to another picture, and say, okay, these are the ones that match. Well, prophecy was given to us so that we could match the description of God's coming Messiah with the one who fulfilled that description. And Jesus, of course, is that one. And there's no one who has fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture of Jesus, of his first coming, like Jesus has. Sometimes I'll, I'll see an article somewhere. It'll say, well, there's this other religion, this other culture that has a similar story. But when you get down to it and you look a little bit more closely, you find that they're really very, very different uh, story. Because... Uh, only Jesus in history, think about these prophecies, the prophecy of him being born in Bethlehem. Uh, if you look in Daniel, there's the prophecy of the date of his death. That's a very specific prophecy. Uh, so where he would live, when he would die, the fact that he would rise from the dead, all these things are, are predicted in Old Testament scripture about Jesus' life. So Jesus is the one who came to fulfill all that the Old Testament anticipated. As we've looked in Isaiah, he came to fulfill these prophecies in Isaiah. How would he bring about the comfort and the change and the difference that were prophesied? The scripture that we're going to look at today answers that question. It is the greatest work the Messiah would ever do because it is the work that would truly make a difference. Uh, uh, he calls it... Uh, the arm of God. How is Israel going to be changed from a wicked nation to a nation that fears God? By the arm of God. How are men who are sinners going to be made righteous? By the arm of God. And that arm of God is expressed through the work, the mighty work of our Lord Jesus Christ when he suffered and died. Of course, this prophecy covers more than just his death, but the main emphasis is his death. Um, we need to put all our trust in Jesus to save us from sin. There's no one else. The title of my message is The Great Suffering Servant. And we're going to begin reading here in just a moment in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. 
Um, and uh, look with me at verse 13. It says, see, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. By the way, this terminology that's used here is only used in Isaiah of God. Only used of God. Jesus is the God-man. So look at verse 14. Just as. In other words, just as. In other words, he's going to be exalted because of what he did. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured he did not look like a man. His form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. He's going to talk about what he's going to do for Israel. But make no mistake, the work of Jesus Christ applies to me and to you. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what they had not, what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity or sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely when you make him a guilt offering. He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as a spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. The great suffering servant. Uh, What does the Bible tell us? Well, there's a lot we could say about this passage. There have been entire books written just on this one passage. But I want to just point out a a few things that are major things this scripture points out to us. First of all, it shows us his identity. His identity. Who is this suffering servant? It tells us through the details that it gives us. Uh, I I sometimes will hear, well, 
the servant in Isaiah 53 wasn't Jesus, it was Israel. Or I'll hear um, the servant uh, are the, those who have suffered, the prophets of Israel, or are those who have suffered in Israel. And uh, No. Or the suffering, the suffering servant was Hezekiah. Doesn't sound much like Hezekiah to me. Uh, but this is actually a prophecy about an individual who dies for Israel. So it can't be Israel. It's about an individual who is raised to life, who rules over not just Israel, but the world. It can't be Hezekiah. The only person it could be is Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, but I want to look at some of these things that the Scripture says right here in this passage that tells us what his identity is. The first one you see in verse 13, it says, My servant will be successful. Uh, my translation says, some of your translations might say wise. Uh, it has, contains both ideas. But wisdom is, is a word that is used to describe the servant. Well, have we heard about a servant who is wise? Yes. We've heard about a child that will be born in Isaiah chapter 11. Who would have a spirit of wisdom upon him. Right? We talked about that a little bit last week. Wise like no one else in history has been wise, even Solomon. Solomon was the wisest mere man. Jesus is the God man. He's wise. He's the source of wisdom, not just someone who knows it. So he would be wise. Yes, Isaiah is making a connection back to this individual that he mentioned in chapter 11 and that he mentioned in chapter 9, uh, that he mentioned in chapter 7. He will be God with us. And so, uh, also, he would be a priest who atones. If you look at verse 15, it says, So he will sprinkle many nations. This word sprinkle is only used in sacrificial context, okay? He's not sprinkling some uh, Ajax on his, on his tub. He's, he's sprinkling blood to atone for sin. It's the only way it's used in the Bible. Now here you have a mystery. How can somebody who is a king, as we're going to see, he's off, that's one of the things that also says he is, is a king. Um, how can somebody who's a king also be a priest? Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Just like Psalm 110 said there would come an individual who would be both a priest and a king. If you were a king in the tribe of Judah, you couldn't be a priest under the tribe of Levi. Ask Uzziah. He got leprosy. God struck him with leprosy for going into the temple and trying to be a priest as a Davidic king. But the Messiah would be both a priest and a king. So he would be a priest. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And by the way, he also had priestly blood running through his veins, even though he wasn't legally of the tribe of Levi. He had Levite ancestors. So he had the blood of the priest flowing through his veins as well. But uh, look what else he says in, in chapter, chapter uh, 53. Speaks of the arm of the Lord, so he would be the means of comfort. Um, throughout Isaiah, we've looked at these passages. They, they keep talking about this child that's going to come, that's going to change everything. Who would this child be? It would be the man described right here in this passage. He is the arm of the Lord. He is the means by which the comfort God's predicting comes. There's no one else that could be. 
Then look at what he says in verse 2 of Isaiah 53. He says he would be a root, like a root. He grew up like a young plant. By the way, that word for young plant in verse 2 can also be translated young child. Now, young plant's probably the right translation since he talks about the root as well. But I can't help making a connection. You're looking for the child, right? Isaiah keeps talking about the child. Here's another mention. But you look at it, it says like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. What does that sound like? Exactly like Isaiah 11. 1. It's the same individual he's talking about here, the Messiah. Like a root out of dry ground. So it would be the root that would make a new beginning. We talked about that before. Just like you cut off a weed, if you don't get the root out, it grows back, right? So Jesus is the root. Though Israel would be cut off and sent into captivity, uh, they would be reestablished. And ultimately, the Messiah would bring them back to God. The root refers to the Messiah, and the root is the same individual mentioned here. Sometimes you'll have a a Jewish person tell you, well, Jesus wasn't a king. He suffered and he died, but he wasn't a king. Yes, he was. Uh, Jesus and their own scripture, the book of Isaiah, says the Messiah would be both the suffering servant and the king. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. We know he spoke of a spiritual kingdom as we surrender to him. But he was also uh, going to come back, as Isaiah 52 tells us in this very passage, to be exalted after he had suffered. And so that's what we have a hope for, Jesus coming to rule after he suffers. So, uh, so he would be the root. And so you look at all these things together And it points back to the child prophecies earlier in the book of Isaiah. And it shows us that this is not not Israel, not Hezekiah. No, this is an individual who is no one less than the Messiah that Isaiah has been talking about. Okay? So his identity. Why is that important? Because you need to recognize who this is so that you can recognize the power of the prophecy when it comes to pass. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. By the way, crucifixion hadn't been invented when Isaiah wrote these words. And yet he describes it. Psalm 22 also describes it, but it's an amazing prophecy. So the identity of the suffering servant is important. Um, Have you ever had somebody send you mail to the wrong house? Okay. And they got the identity wrong, right? And so, yeah, you don't want to get the identity of the Messiah wrong. And you don't want to get the identity of the person in this passage wrong. Because if you do, it points you in the wrong direction. This passage needs to point you to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who fulfills it. He's the only one who all the details of this prophecy come to fulfillment in. And, and he's the only one who can provide the salvation this passage describes. So his identity is very, very important. So, the passage shows us his identity. First, secondly, what does it tell us about uh, this great suffering servant? It tells us of his opposition. Verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men. Didn't have a, an attractive appearance, apparently. Verse 2 tells us. Uh, he says he was like somebody people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. Okay? So he is opposed by men. Now, Jesus is the most opposed man of history. 
Yes, he was opposed by the religious leadership of his day. He was opposed by certain factions within Judaism who didn't agree with what he taught. Uh, But with most people, when you die, the opposition ceases, right? Not so with Jesus. The opposition continued. The Jews continued to, to speak, the Jewish leadership continued to speak against the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, they sent people to kill Paul because he was preaching the name of Jesus. People in the different areas of the Gentile world uh, would hear the message of Jesus and often would persecute those who shared the message. Same thing is happening today around the world. Christians are being persecuted. Why is it that there's so much opposition against Christianity? A religion that preaches love and redemption. It's because it's associated with a person named Jesus. Uh, Franklin Graham shared a story in, uh, in his book entitled The Name about uh, a, a time where he was praying in Washington. They'd invited him to some event, and he had to give the invocation, and he prayed, and he, and he ended his prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. And this lady came up to him afterwards and said, How dare you end your prayer in Jesus' name? She was mad. She was furious. How dare he speak the name of Jesus? What is it about Jesus that brings so much opposition? There's also the, the Bible is attacked in the same way, right? The word of Jesus is attacked the same way. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, I, I've listened to uh, debates at times and, and so forth. Uh, and uh, one of the arguments that's offered for the validity of the Scripture is the tests of ancient history. The Bible fulfills those tests of ancient history better than any other ancient book. If you reject the Bible, you have to reject all of ancient literature. Pretty strong argument, isn't it? Why is the Bible so attacked? Why every Easter... And every Christmas, is there a program that comes on TV that tries to deny what the Bible says about those dates? You ever notice that? Every time. Every time. Um, Why is it? It's because of the opposition to the person whose name is Jesus. He's the most opposed man in history. He's made the greatest difference in history. But he's also the most opposed man in history. So, yes, this prophecy fits Jesus better than anyone. So, he was opposed by men. He's also opposed by God. Now, in verse 4, it says, We in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. Struck down by God and afflicted. In other words, they thought he wasn't who he says he was. He's being punished by God. The reason he died on the cross is he's being punished by God. He wasn't who he said he was. What they didn't realize was he was being struck down by God, but not for the reason they thought. Verse 5 tells us he was pierced because of our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquities. And so um, there was opposition by God because... This, and, and he goes on to say the latter part of, of the book of Isaiah, he, he was innocent. He, he suffered as an innocent man. By the way, that only can describe Jesus too. 
So he, he's, he's suffering because our sin was placed upon him. So he's opposed by God. Uh, he also received an undeserved death sentence. Look at verse 8. The second part of verse 8 says he was cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9 says, uh, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was with a rich man at his death. By the way, that was uh, indeed the, the case. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was crucified, and what they did with crucifixion victims is assign them the same grave place. They throw them all in the same place. But Joseph of Arimathea intervened. He was a rich man who had a, a nice tomb. And he wanted to put Jesus in his tomb. Two very specific fulfillments of prophecy from this very scripture. Verse 9 says he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. So it was an undeserved death sentence. So his opposition, um, very, very clear, his identity, his opposition, and thirdly, his heart. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. You remember, Jesus, they're, they're throwing all these false accusations against Jesus. Um, does a false accusation make you mad? Does me. And if it's against me, especially if it's against somebody I love, right? That's not true! How dare you say that, right? This is untrue. False accusation. It's unjust. He didn't speak a word. Why? Uh, the scripture tells us Pilate was amazed. He wasn't answering his accusers. What's going on here? And then Pilate, he pulls him aside. One of the gospels gives a little bit more detailed account. Uh, Jesus does answer a couple of questions of Pilate. But only after Pilate has been cajoling him and everything and saying, don't you realize I have the power to put you to death and keep you alive? Jesus said, you wouldn't have any power unless God had given that power to you. So why? Why would Jesus keep his mouth shut as he's been led away to an unjust verdict and an unjust death? Because he did it on purpose. Scripture tells us in, in the Gospels, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew opposition was there. One of the disciples said, let's go die with him. You know, he, they knew that Jerusalem was the center of persecution, was the center of opposition against Jesus. But Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, set his face toward the cross. One place he tells the disciples, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. Willingly. Verse 10 here in this scripture tells us it was God's pleasure to crush him for us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all three involved in the crucifixion of Jesus and used that to redeem us from sin. And they did it because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved us and wanted to save us. That's his heart. You see, some people may keep their mouth shut because they're afraid. <laughs> I like what John's gospel tells us. Jesus said, I am, and they all fell backwards. 
Now, if somebody said, I am, and I fell backwards, I think I'd think twice about arresting them. But for some reason, they went ahead and arrested him. Jesus was in complete control. He told somebody, he said, look, in one minute, I could call 10,000 angels, and they would come and destroy all my enemies. He was in complete control. But he willingly chose to go to the cross. Others might be silent if they were going to die for their child or for a friend, if it's a particularly noble person. Jesus was silent to die for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus fulfills the prediction of what the heart of the Messiah would be like like no one else has ever felt it. He died for his enemies. Romans 8 says, For a good man some might dare to die, but God shows his own love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his heart. So his identity, his opposition, his heart, and finally I want you to see his sacrifice. His sacrifice. He says, um, he was, verse, verse 5 says, he was pierced because of our rebellion. The way he would die was by being pierced. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly the description of crucifixion. He would be crushed because of our iniquities. This is a spiritual thing here. Jesus was crushed by the weight of the wrath and justice of God. The punishment for our peace was upon him. We are healed by his wounds. Or by his stripes. I like that translation. Stripes. We're healed. Um, verse 10 says, when you make him a guilt offering. Now see, they, would, they understood what a guilt offering was. If you're an Israelite, these things got offered all the time. There were, there were different kinds of offerings. The guilt offering was one type of offering. And what the guilt offering involved, it involved both uh, taking care of a penalty for sin, but also making restitution for the wrongs done. Some people even call it, some experts call it the restitution offering. Why is that significant? Because Jesus not only took the penalty for our sin, but he lived the perfect life that God required that none of us have lived. He made restitution for the life we couldn't live. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm going to live good enough. God, I do more good things than bad things. I go to church. Uh, I don't smoke, chew, or go with girls that do. Uh, I'm going to go to heaven. No, you won't. Not without Jesus Christ. What's God's standard? Absolute perfection. And none of us are perfect, even close. All of us have sinned. All of us, we all like sheep have gone astray, the scripture says. So, if God's standard was to be met, Jesus had to become the restitution offering for us. He had to take both the penalty for our sin and our guilt upon himself, but also make restitution for the perfect life that we couldn't possibly live. That's why the scripture says we are justified. We are declared righteous. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And why he says later on in the scripture, 
my servant would justify many. By the way, 100% of guilt offerings died. 100%, okay? You didn't go and sort of kill the guilt offering. It was always dead. It was completely dead. Some, some may say, well, this is just figurative. No, a guilt offering was always a death. He, he confirms this when he talks about what he's going to do for the Messiah later on in verse 12. He says, because he willingly submitted to death. Okay? So the Messiah would die unjustly, fulfilled in history. But then he also says something very interesting. My translation in verse 10 says, when you make him a guilt offering, you can, it, sometimes that word is translated if, uh, it can also be included, uh, uh, it can also be translated surely. And I think that's the correct translation here. Because he's talking about he's, the Lord crushing him severely. And he says, surely you make him a guilt offering. This tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us what the sacrificial system was about. It wasn't about just making sacrifices. It was looking forward to someone who would come to be the sacrifice. That person's name is Jesus Christ. But it also tells us that the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrifices were insufficient to take care of the problem of sin. Ask Isaiah. If you read the book of Isaiah, that Israel, Israel was not following after God. Their hearts had not been changed. Something different would have to take place. Jesus would come. So, surely you make him a guilt offering. But then, this is amazing. But he will see a seed. Now, earlier it says who has considered his fate or who has considered his, literally his generation. Verse 8. He had no generation. He had no physical descendants because he was put to death. And yet, verse 10 says he will see his seed. Jesus says uh, the seed of Abraham are those who hear the word of God and do it. See, there's not just Jewish people who are the seed of Abraham. You could be a seed of Abraham. How? Through Christ's sacrifice. God makes you his child and you become his offspring, his child. So he will see his seed and he will prolong his day. In other words, as a result of what he's done in his death, Person after person after person after person after person after person after person would be saved. And it's still happening today. The scripture says that when a, a person is saved, the angels of heaven rejoice. What this scripture tells me is that my Lord who created the universe, who holds it together by his power, who tells the ocean how far it can go and all these things. When I surrendered to Christ and put my trust in him, he looked down and he said, there's Roger Pugh. He just gave his heart to me. He will see. See. By the way, you can't see your seat if you're dead. 
dead people don't see. Well, then he says, he will prolong his days. How's that happen? How do dead people prolong their days? Come back to life, right? By his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. In other words, his work is not finished. After he dies, his work continues. He is risen. And we're told in the New Testament, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for you and me. Verse 11, if you, in case you were wondering, well, maybe this is talking about before he died. No, verse 11 says, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, there it is, will justify many. I love that. He will carry, he will bear their iniquities. My sin was placed on Jesus' shoulders at the cross. Hallelujah. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Philippians puts it this way. He emptied himself, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And because of this, God has highly exalted him. He's given him a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, the scripture tells us about the great suffering service. It tells us his identity, his opposition, his heart, and his sacrifice. Truly amazing prophecy. Written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, confirmed. I love, it. liberal scholars said, you know, this, this Isaiah 53 passage, it's, it's so specific. It had to be written after Jesus was crucified. Then they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the great Isaiah scroll dated to 200 years B.C. I've looked at it, digital pictures of it on the, on the Internet. Um, it has this passage in it. I've looked at the verses in this passage. An amazing miracle of God. He preserved it in the, in the desert just to throw all that liberal garbage to the flames. Listen, I want to tell you something. We serve a living God. And this living God declares the end from the beginning. Let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you do, you need to worship and praise his name for what he's done for you. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Without Jesus, we'd all split hell wide open. But with Jesus, we have a home of heaven and a new life, a new heart. Um, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, God has given the best he has for you. No other way it could have happened. If you had sent your son to die for somebody, and that person rejected what you had done, how would that make you feel? I'm going to tell you something. If people die without Jesus Christ, they will face the justice of a holy God. There will be no talking out of it. There will be no excuses. God gave the best he could give. 
to win you to, to, to relationship with him. If you reject it, there's no hope. There's no hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for showing me in my heart that I was lost. Thank you for the amazing grace that you showed and the sin that you paid for, past, present, and future. Thank you for those precious words, it is finished. And God, I just pray for these who are gathered here today. Lord, maybe there's some who, who are believers, but just really haven't recognized the full importance and, and significance of what Jesus has done. Lord, let us never hang our heads, Lord, and refuse to come into your presence because of shame or guilt. Lord, you've paid the price. Help us confess our sins to restore the fellowship. But God, help us come boldly into your presence. Help us live in the fullness of all that you've purchased for us as your, as your people. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I pray. Lord, who...